0: Now, it is all about Jesus. I remember when I was uh, just early in the ministry, and I, I took a youth group away on a trip. And I really put a lot of work and effort and energy into this trip. And so many of the youngsters, they just made life so difficult for me. <laughs> They were falling out and rowing and arguing and going through all kinds of stuff. And I was feeling really tired and fed up. And I remember praying to God and I said, oh, God, is this, this is just awful. Okay? I've put just so much work and effort into this. And it seemed to just, would just be so ungrateful. didn't appreciate my sacrifice. Okay. And that night, that evening, we were having, we'd organized a party for them, and uh, I was standing outside. I didn't want to go, I didn't feel like i in party mood. And God just began to speak to my heart, and He says, You know, something He reminded me of when I was in Bible college. He said, David, He said, Do you love me? I said, Yes. I said, Feed my sheep. So, sometimes I confess to you, I've been a pastor for many years. And if you've been in any kind of ministry whatsoever, sometimes the sheep can be hard to love. Okay? Even though we should, we humans are. You know, even to love each other. Somebody, you know, once put it in the form of a little rhyme. They said, "To live above with saints you know, well that will be glory. But to, uh, to live above with to live above with saints you love, that will be glory. But to live below you know, with saints you know, that's another story." Okay. And I remember being there, and the words of a song came back, an old, old chorus that uh, used to sing, the greatest thing in all my heart, Lord, is loving you. Just remember that old chorus? The greatest thing in all my heart, Lord, is serving you, is knowing you. And I just felt at that moment just a refiring in my heart that primarily when the going gets tough, I mean, Jesus Gives us the power to keep going. And Jesus, I believe in you. When life gets tough, life is not fair, folks. This world is not fair. I mean, somebody once said, a very wise person, I think it was me actually. (laughs) One of the things I love to do is quote myself from my book is, you know, someone once said, and I think it was was me, (laughs) if all you want in this world is fairness, you will probably go mad. Because this is not a fair world. Some of the things that have happened to you and me are not fair. Something's gone horribly wrong in our world. It's not what God created it to be. Some of the things that people have done to us have not been fair. Some of the things we've experienced, is not fair. It's not fair. But you know, God gives us something that is even greater than fairness. Do you know what it is? It's called Grace. Because the amazing thing about grace is this grace isn't fair either. It's not fair that Jesus died in my place upon a cross. It's not fair that he took my sin. It's not fair that he took my penalty. It's not fair that he was wounded and marked and marred and scarred that I may go free. It's not fair. And whenever I get to that point in life when I think, God, it's not fair. Because one of the things that puts the passion out in our heart and causes the fire to die is then when we get caught up in, the, God, it's not fair what they've done to me. It's not fair what they've said to me. It's not fair that this has happened to me. And, you know, the old enemy comes in and says, yeah, it's not fair. It's not fair the way they've treated you. It's not fair what's happened to you. It's not fair. It's not fair the tragedies, the heartache that you've been through. You know, it's not fair when someone in work who you know is dishonest gets promoted above you and you are as honest as you can be. It's not fair. It's not fair. But you know, when we get into that syndrome of it's not fair, do you know how I get healed and set free from it? I come again to the cross and I say, thank you, Jesus. That's not fair either, but you did it for me. And then I remember something else. And I said, Lord, I thank you that this world isn't fair, but the best is still to come. There was a missionary by the name of Morrison. He served in Africa all his life. And he tells the story of when he came back to America after more than 40 years on the mission field. The missionary society forgot to send anyone to pick him up when he got off the ship. On the same ship that day, the Teddy Roosevelt was returning from one of his overseas hunting trips. And the bands had come out to play and the people had the flags and they were waving and they were cheering the president. And he said, as he stood on the harbor with his suitcase, all his family had died. He had no friends in America. He'd served all his life in Africa. And nobody had come to meet him. And he looked of all the cheering crowds at the president. He said, he began to complain to God. And he says, God, it's not fair. He says, all my life I've served you. He says, I've given you all the years that I have. And he says, when I come home, nobody comes to meet me. He says, but when the president returns, the bands play, the crowds cheer. And he says, as he was standing there hurting, grieving, thinking, what has it been all about (laughs) He said, God spoke to his heart. And he said, son, I want you to remember this. He said, you're not home yet. He said, America is not your home. New York is not your home. He says, but when you come home, he said, he said the angels will sing. He said, then the bands will really play. He said, son, remember, you are not home yet. And when we confront the unfairness of life, we come to the cross And we remember that the best is still to come. That's good news. I mean, that's good news. Many Christians start the spiritual race well, but they don't always finish it well, tragically, sadly. Something happens, hurts, disappointments, discouragements, whatever they may be. Sin, the fire begins to burn low and the fire begins to die down and go out. In fact, probably right now, even as I'm saying this, you could probably think of people that you know who were at one time on fire for God and now they spiritually is gone. In fact, they may even have been responsible for you coming to church and you were here, but they are not anymore. See, yeah. it's just one thing to start the race well, it's another thing to finish the race well. I mean, the Apostle Paul could say at the end of his life, he says, I fought a good fight. He says, he says, I have finished the race. He says, now the best is before me. There's a crown that is waiting for me. Well, what causes the fires to go out? Well, it's usually the hurts and the disappointments or the sin and the bondage that come into our heart. And at one time, we were just there for God. But now, well, it's not like it was before. The Bible talks about losing your first love. What what does it mean to lose your first love? Who is our first love? Our first love is Jesus. You lose your first love when the relationship is not what it was and it's not what it should be. Let me tell you two, two of the symptoms that happen when the fire begins to go out. There are several I talk about in my book, The Burning Heart. But two of the symptoms, see if you can identify any of these. Number one is in our lives as Christians, the mundane begins to replace the miraculous. Now somebody once said, he said, am I so busy mowing the grass that I'm missing the burning bush? Well, what happens when the fire goes out? We, we, we just settle for less. We settle for the status quo. In fact, what happens is that because of props hurts and disappointments, we don't really want to believe for anything more anymore because we don't want the disappointment of it not happening. I mean, miracles may happen for others, but it's hard to believe for miracles happening for you. It's like the disciples on the Emmaus Road that they coming out of Jerusalem you know they walk into Emmaus but really they're running away from Jerusalem it had been an awful weekend Jesus had died Their, their dreams had all gone and now when Jesus appears on the road and he begins to talk to them and it says their faces are downcast their hearts are heavy and Jesus says, "Why, why, where are you going? What, what are you doing? And they say, are you the only one who hasn't heard about what's happened in Jerusalem? They said, we had hoped. He was the one. We had hoped he was the Messiah. We had hoped. We had dreamt. We had believed. We had committed our lives to something, to someone. And then we saw him die. And not only that, but some of those women have been to the tomb and they've come back with some strange stories. And they said that he's he's alive and he's risen. Now, have you ever wondered how amazing that is? The women are saying that he's alive, but they're still getting out of Jerusalem. (laughs) They're still going to Emmaus. I mean, the women are telling what's happened, but they find it hard to believe. They find it hard to accept. In fact, they don't accept it. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been running away. And the women, oh, I think it's wonderful. Jesus appeared first to the women. I, one of the most amazing things is he appeared to Mary Magdalene. The first person Jesus he appeared to after the resurrection was a former prostitute who was possessed by demons. She was the first one to see Jesus. Isn't that amazing? So why did God appear tell the women first? I don't know if this is theologically true, but somebody once said that Jesus appeared first to the women to make sure the news got out quickest. Now, I I don't think that is the case. I I think the women were probably just more sensitive and open. (laughs) But they were getting out the why We had hoped, broken dreams and disappointments, puts the fire out you begin to settle for the mundane instead of the miraculous one bishop put it this way he said you know he said every time i read in the bible i read about the apostle paul and everywhere he went there was either a revival or riot he said but everywhere i go they offer me a cup of tea yeah i think oh god when the fire goes out we begin to settle for less And the devil, he is after the fire in our hearts. He is after our faith. And the way he gets to our faith is through broken hopes and broken dreams. Because if the devil can take away your hope, if he can destroy hope, he destroys faith. Because faith is the substance of things hoped for. And when hope is gone, it's impossible to rise up in faith and take hold and believe in God. When hope is gone, it's, 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 it's impossible to say, come on, let's go and take the land. Let's run against the giants. Let's believe for God's purposes. Let's fulfill our destiny. Because he attacks our faith through seeking to destroy our hope. S-Sallin Hughes. Uh, fellow Welshman. He, he was actually born in a town, a village, not far from where I live, a place called Vochru. And out of Wachru, God raised up this wonderful man of God, he wrote the series Every Day with Jesus. He's a wonderful writer, teacher, preacher. And towards the end of his life, he, he, he tells that he was once asked in a radio interview, What in all his experience as a Christian minister and counselor was the number one problem that he encountered in counseling and dealing with Christians? So what is the number one problem? And do you know what he said without any hesitation? He said, the number one difficulty that I've encountered over the years in dealing with Christians is disappointment with God. He said, "Well, well, what do you mean? He said that there was something, some prayer, some time, some experience when God did not come through the way they expected, where the healing didn't happen or the provision didn't take place, the miracle didn't occur, and something died in their heart. They didn't stop believing in God because they knew God was real because of what he'd already done in their lives. But something, something went out. And he said they became disappointed. And he said, over time, he said, they've learned to live with the pain or the disappointment or the disillusionment. He says, but the scars never properly heal. And when that happens to you, 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 you can find it hard to pray. Pray. You know, prayer is the most wonderful, comforting thing for us as Christians, but it's also one of the most confusing things as well. You see, because when fire goes out and when hope dies, and when past prayers have not been answered the way you expected, or healings haven't taken place, or breakthroughs haven't occurred, or the job didn't come through, or the miracles, whatever it might be, prayer becomes a very confusing thing in our lives. Say, well, yes, Lord, I do believe you answer prayer, but it seems you answer for everybody else, but not for me. (laughs) It's great to hear other people's testimonies, but it doesn't seem to be for me. And we learn to live at a very low level spiritually. And part of that is we're almost frightened to get excited again, to believe again, to rise up again, because we don't want any more disappointments. We had hoped Now, Salvanes was asked another question. He said, well, why do Christians become disappointed in that way with God? And he said, the major reason is a wrong understanding of who God is and of God's ways. Now, this was the problem with these two disciples on the Emmaus Road. They had come out of Jerusalem. They were running away to Emmaus. We had hoped. And Jesus said to them, oh, how slow of heart. How foolish you are. And he began to open to them the scriptures, all that the prophets had said about Jesus. See, they were expecting this glorious Messiah who would deliver them from Rome and who would come in great power and triumph and victory. But they had no comprehension or understanding of the other part, the suffering servant who would die on the cross, who came this first time to deal with the power of sin and the power of death. And so Jesus would have taken them back to Genesis 3, about the seed of the woman whose heel would be bruised, but who would crush the serpent, head. the first prophetic declaration of what Jesus would do on the cross. One of the things that always happened to victims who were crucified, that when they were taken down, their heels were bruised because they had been held against the posts. But on the cross, the serpent's head was crushed. Jesus would have taken them to Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? and describes in graphic detail what Jesus went through on the cross. And the psalm was written 700 years, even before crucifixion was invented by the Persians in about 300 BC. Even before there was crucifixion, the psalmist is describing what's going to take place. Isaiah 53. We all like sheep had gone astray, everyone to his own way, but God has laid upon Jesus the iniquity of us all. And they had a wrong understanding. It was an incomplete theology of God and his ways. And Selwyn Hughes, he said, he put it like this. He says, we have this wrong bottom line knowledge of who God is. And he was asked, well, what do you mean? He said, well, he said, if our bottom line understanding of who God is, is that God is a healer. That is wonderful. Wonderful. But what about the times when healing doesn't happen? Or maybe your bottom line understanding of who God is is that God is a deliverer. But what if deliverance doesn't take place? Or every every two minutes or three minutes, someone in our world dies a martyr's death for believing in Jesus. God is a great provider, but what if you didn't get the job? What if you lost the house? What if it didn't happen? See, oftentimes we come into an understanding of who God is through a particular salvation experience. Maybe you got wonderfully delivered and set free. God's a deliverer. Amen. He is. Maybe you got healed. Maybe you had a wonderful conversion and the grace of God just transformed your life whatever it may be maybe you saw prayers answered a loved one got come wonderfully saved whatever it might be and what we end up doing with our theology is that then we emotionally attach that experience to our fundamental understanding of who God is and when that doesn't happen again in the future we become discouraged we become confused we become disappointed say well God you did it before God it happened in the past God, why, why isn't it happening now? God, you answered those prayers. Nothing is more exciting in our Christian experience when you're seeing your prayers answered. Nothing is more confusing than when they're not. Yeah. And Selwyn Hughes said this, he said, what is our bottom line understanding of who God is? Because that determines how the fire keeps burning. How we go through the trials and the valleys and the difficulties of life. And I want to tell you tonight this. That our bottom line view of God. Fundamental foundation understanding of who God is. We go all the way back to Genesis 1. And we discover that fundamentally and ultimately. God is Good. He is morally perfect in everything he is and everything he does. Because it tells us not only what God did in Genesis 1, it tells us something about who God is. Everything he made, everything he touched, everything he did was good. When Moses wanted to see God's glory, God said, Moses, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and my glory will pass by. And he says, I proclaim the Lord who is faithful, the Lord who is merciful, the Lord who is righteous, the Lord who is just, the Lord who does not let sin go unpunished. And he says, Moses, all my goodness, all my goodness will pass by you. This is one of the great cries in the Old Testament of the people of God, even when they went into battle. Face the overwhelming enemies was, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Oh, taste and see that God is good. And surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I'll dwell in God's house forever. God is able to make all things work together for good. To those who love him, called according to his purpose. He is a good God. He is a good God. God is a good God when you get the promotion. He's also a good God if you don't get it. God is a good God when the miraculous healings take place before your eyes. He is still good when it doesn't happen before your eyes. God is a good God. When the church is full and everybody comes, this is something I had to learn. God is still a good God if the church is empty and everybody leaves. He is still a good God. Now, my emotional experience may change, but my life is not to be built on my emotional comings and goings. My life is to be built on the fact that God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. And why I can say that absolutely is because of what Jesus did on the cross for me and in my place. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin, to open the gates of heaven and to let us in. And when we in our spirits understand and can affirm that, that our God is a good God even when I don't understand what's happening in my prayers, even when I don't understand what's happening in my calling, even when I don't understand what's happening in my life, it still makes no difference to God is a good God. There is nothing the devil will be able to do to take you out or to wipe you out. Because when we know that God is good... And it's just not built on a high in a meeting or an emotional experience, but just on the truth that Jesus gave his life for me. And by his spirit, he gives his life to me. I can stand against anything. And the fire just keeps burning brighter and growing stronger because I'm not a Christian who is just up and down with the flow of the moment. I'm someone like... And this is where I long to be, where Paul, as he is facing a Roman executioner, and he writes to Timothy, and he says, Timothy, he says, yeah, I've ran this race. The course is finished. I want you to know that it's not some mad emperor in Rome that is taking my life. Timothy, I want you to know my time for my departure has come. My life is being poured out like a drink offering. When they brought the sacrifices to God in the temple, in the tabernacle, they would often bring with some of the sacrifices wine to pour with the sacrifice. Wine was a symbol of joy. They say, we make this sacrifice not begrudgingly. We make it joyfully to you, God. And my life is being poured out with joy, says Paul. See, there was a time in his life, well, there were a number of times, actually, when he was in prison before and God sent an incredible deliverance. Remember the story in Philippi where God sent an earthquake and then and, and the jailer gets saved and his family gets saved? And I mean, oh, that's a wonderful story, isn't it? But you know, this time God wasn't going to send an earthquake, the devil was going to send an executioner. But Paul had come to a place where he could say, He says, I fought the fight. He says, I'm going to a better place. He's saying, Timothy, it doesn't matter. He says, whether there's an earthquake or an execution, it doesn't matter, Timothy. He says, because I want you to know, I know in whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed unto him against that day. Doesn't matter if revival comes tomorrow or if persecution comes tomorrow and we lose our jobs and we lose our homes and we lose our possessions. God is still a good God. Doesn't matter if I go in tomorrow, what well, it does to me and there's no job or whether I've said, they say to me, you've been working so well. Here's a new company car and here's a pay raise. Here's a bonus. Oh, that's wonderful. God is good. Listen, God is good in the bad times and in the good times. He's a good God. Through green pastures and dark valleys, he does not change. So we affirm that in our heart and in our spirit of who God is. He's good. And he has been good to me. He's been very good to me. And I know that he will continue to be good to me even when I don't understand what's happening in my life. Now the Bible says that they that seek God with all their heart will be found of him. We just put my watch there. Have you ever felt, and this is another reason why often the fire can go out, and I'm not preaching tonight, I assume, and I just want to share some thoughts with you, and then we just pray together and just worship Jesus. But have you ever thought... At the thought, God, sometimes you are hard to find. I mean, God, where are you? Sometimes you speak to young Christians and they, they seem to get so many of their prayers answered so quickly. <laughs> and when you've been a Christian for some years, it just doesn't seem to happen so fast. I say, When you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. God, is it that you don't want to be found? Well, it can't be that because if God didn't want to be found, we could never find him because he's God. So, so God, why is it? Why do we have to seek you with all our heart? Now, before we came out, to we were praying in the back room there and uh, Pastor Adrian shared. And, you know, he, he just said there is something of a connection that takes place that when we open our hearts, God opens the heavens. And it was so powerful, and it was so true, significant, that when our hearts become open, the heavens become open. There's a connection, because blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So God, why do we have to seek you with all our hearts? Now Jesus put it like this. He said, when you pray, ask, seek, and knock. And go on asking, go on seeking, go on knocking, and then it shall be opened and given unto you. Now, we, we long at times for a deeper encounter with God. We long for a move of God in our church, in our communities. And we come and we begin praying, but often we get discouraged. Because we like to go straight from the asking stage to the knocking stage. Asking is the point of entry. Knocking is the point of breakthrough. But at any move of God, any significant thing that has ever happened in any nation, any community, any church, there is always a seeking stage. And that's the part we find difficult. We want to ask and we want to knock. But when you seek me with all your heart, you will be found of me. You say, well, God... Is it that we've got to try and persuade you? Do we have to persuade you to bless? Do we have to persuade you to pour out your spirit? Do we have to persuade you to do these things? Listen, if God didn't want to be persuaded, there's nothing we could do to make him. We don't have to persuade God. So why do we have to change God? To change his mind? How could we change his mind if he is God? What happens in the seeking stage isn't that God is being changed. Yeah, you got it. What happens in the seeking stage isn't that God is being changed. It's we are being changed. Our hearts are being changed. God is saying, I am now positioning and moving you and bringing you to a place to give you all the blessing that I have longed to pour out upon your life. I'm bringing you to a place to trust you with gifting and to trust you with anointing that I couldn't trust you with it before. Not because I didn't love you, but because you were not in a place to be able to receive it and to handle it. In the seeking stage to this wonderful good God who wants to bless us and who wants to pour out his spirit upon us, we are not changing him, church. He is changing us. He's changing us. See, the question isn't whether God loves me tonight. The question is this, how much can God trust me? Now, even with our children, you know, we can love all our children the same, but we can trust some with more than others because they have come to a place of maturity, responsibility, accountability. And now we say, you take the car. (laughs) I have the keys of the house. Here you go. Now you've come to, I can trust you with more. I didn't give them to you before, not because I didn't love you, but because I did love you. But now I can give you... More. A heart after God is a heart that's being changed in the process so that God can bless us and give us so much more. Evan Roberts was a man with such a heart. Interestingly enough, where I travel, you know, not every almost everywhere you go in the world, they've heard of the Welsh Revival. And the reason for that is the Welsh Revival literally almost did touch the world, it went everywhere. And Everett Roberts, just 26 years of age, praying and seeking God for a move of God in the nation that had become spiritually and socially so barren and desperate, describes encounters that he had with God in the early hours of the morning when he was taken up, as it were, into heaven. He said he didn't know whether he was in the body or out of the body. And it was as if he met with God face to face, over a period of several months. And during that time, God put into his spirit that 100,000 people in Wales would come into the church and become members within six months. That was, like five, that was almost like 10% of the population in six months being added to the church. And he describes the time when he went into a church prayer meeting. And he he says it in these words, he says, you know, the the altar was built, the sacrifice was laid upon the altar, but we were now looking and praying and believing God for the fire. They had been seeking, seeking, seeking God's. And he describes all that that day he says the power of God began to flow through him and he began to sweat and he began to cry and call out to God for mercy and the great cry of the Welsh revival was Lord, bend us, bend us, bend us, bend us. And that day, the fire of God fell upon his life and it touched the whole nation and it touched the world. 26 years of age. That your heart after God. It's not about age. It's not about how young you are. It's not about how old you are. It's about whether your heart is on fire or not. And as he's crying out to God, and God pours out his spirit, the nation, first of all, his own little church, and then the towns, then the villages, and God begins to move in that land. It was the same up in the Hebrides, 1949. And there, Duncan Campbell, two elderly ladies, Christine and Peggy Smith, 184, 182. One was crippled, one was blind. On one night, Peggy, who was the blind lady, God gave her a vision. A blind lady has a vision. And in that vision, she sees scores and scores and hundreds of young people walk into church None of the young people in that community went to church. And so she says, sends to a minister who's come to the church in Barvis. She says, pray God is going to bring a revival to the community. And a group of ministers and leaders in the church and community begin praying. And as they're praying one night, a young man... Begins to read from Psalm 24. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in God's holy presence? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not sworn by what is false or lifted up his soul to idols, He will receive vindication from God. And as he's standing there reading the scripture, the power of God comes into the barn. And he cries out and he says, Are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? He says, if my hands are not clean and my heart is not pure, all my prayers are just so much humbug. They don't mean anything. And he says, Oh, God, move in our community. And the power and the fire of God came into the barn. And God saturated that community, did amazing things. These are heart issues. There's a story in the Old Testament. A man by the name of Elijah one day, he confronts the prophets of Baal. The nation is in a desperate state. Jezebel is controlling the throne. Ahab is a weak king. And now it's time for a showdown at the OK Corral. And all the prophets of Baal, 400, and prophets of Ashtoreth, about 450, they meet with Balan, they meet with Elijah and Carmel. And all day long, they're cutting themselves and shouting and praying and screaming and whatever they do. And no fire falls upon their sacrifice. And Elijah says, now it's my turn. And the first, Elijah did three things. And if we want the fire of God to fall upon our hearts, if we want our hearts to burn, if we want to see the fire come, there are three things that he did. Number one, It says he rebuilt the altar of the Lord because the fire of God does not fall on broken down altars. The altar has to be restored. Number two, he put a sacrifice upon the altar. put a bull because the fire of God does not fall on empty altars. The fire of God always falls upon sacrifice. And number three, because it had been in the heat of the day, And there would be no tricks that would be involved. He said, put no fire underneath the altar. See, one of the tricks of the prophets of Baal was often they would build altars. And they would have a hollow under the altar where one of the prophets would hide in it. And he would ignite the sacrifice from beneath. And they would shout out, oh great Baal, oh great Baal, oh great Baal. And Elijah says, put no fire under the altar. Let everything be done in view. We don't want any fire that's worked up from below. We want the fire that comes down from above. We want the real thing. We don't want hype. We want reality. And then they take the water and they pour it over the sacrifice. And he says, do it again. Do it again. Fire doesn't fall on dirty sacrifices. And then God answered. And when I come before the Lord, the altar of my heart, the sacrifice of my life, the cleanliness, the purity of my hands and my heart before God, I can say, God, let the fire fall. Let the fire fall. Let it come upon me once again. There was a young man by the name of Jim Elliot, 29 years of age. 1956, Ian, as four other friends gave their lives, reaching the Alcar Indians in the Ecuadorian jungles of America, South America. The news traveled around the world that missionary fires everywhere. They said these five martyrs for the faith, they gave their lives, they gave their all. When a few years before, Jim Elliot was in Wheaton College studying. He writes these words in his journal as he's reading Hebrews chapter 1 about God makes his servants a flame of fire. And these are the words he puts under that passage in his journal. He says, Oh God, he said, Am I ignitable? <laughs> he says, but, but flame is transient, often short-lived. He says, oh God, deliver me from the dread asbestos of other things. Can you bear this or oh my soul's short life? But within me there dwells the spirit of the great short-lived, whose zeal for his father's house consumed him. And that day he prophetically ended his journal with these words, which God was going to powerfully enact a few years later. He says, make me thy fuel, O flame of God. Wow. That's a heart that's on fire. That's a heart that keeps fire. That's a heart that catches fire. Make me thy fuel, O flame of God. I don't know where your heart is tonight. I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey. But I I, I do know this. God is a good God, whatever you've been through. He loves you. He cares for you. Let me finish by saying this. One of, the, one of the words that theologians often use to describe what Jesus went through at the cross, they call it the passion. Did, did many of you see the film The Passion with Mel Gibson? It's a powerful film. A lot of people thought maybe that film would bring a revival, bring a move of God. It, it didn't. The film was very powerful and strong on, te- on showing the physical sufferings that Jesus went through. Where it was very weak is that you could watch the film and you could see what he experienced, but you didn't necessarily understand why he was experiencing it, why he was going through all this, why. It was strong on the what, but not on the why. But it portrayed his passion. And what Jesus went through physically was horrendous but what he went through emotionally and spiritually was even worse because you see if, if in a sense they could say this god to forgive us to forgive you and me there was a dilemma it was a divine dilemma how could a holy god declare unholy people clean and still be holy And so the way God did that was by sending his son, by coming himself. And one day John the Baptist says, as he sees Jesus coming to be baptized in the Jordan, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But even that can present a dilemma. How can one man carry the sin of all people? How is it just that one could take and pay the penalty for so many Only if that one was God himself, because we had not sinned against angels, we had not sinned against archangels, we had sinned against God. God could never send anybody else and still be just. And secondly, if that one was able to pay the price without measure for everybody's sin. And so what the cross means for you and me is that because Jesus is God and because there was no limit to the punishment he could experience, there was no limit to the penalty that he could endure, he took sin and all its consequences and he paid it all. I can't comprehend what that means. He took it all. He paid it all. All the sickness, all the iniquity, all the corruption. He took it all upon himself. Because he loved you and me. That's passion. That's passion. That's passion. So how much does he love me? Well, we know the cross wasn't the end. He rose again. Now the good news for you and me tonight is this. Jesus died to give his life for us. But that doesn't save us. Jesus died for the whole world. That doesn't save us. He rose again to give his life to us. And what saves us is that when we recognize he gave his life for us and we give our life to him and then we receive his life to us. And he did it all for you and me. And then one day, we will stand and we will see him in glory. And the Bible says, when we see him, we will be like him. Say, oh, Jesus, you did all that for me. But we will be like him, but there will be a physical difference. Because we will have perfect bodies. Can you imagine that? Isn't that something wonderful to look forward to? Without blemish. But there will be one scarred body in eternity. And when Jesus rose again from the dead, he became a man and stayed a man for eternity. He didn't just become a man for 33 years. He became a man forever. There is now one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And we will see him, and we will have perfect bodies for all eternity. But there will be one who will have scars, and he will be marred, and he will be marked for eternity. So uh, this is amazing passion. We will be without blemish. The only scarred person in heaven will be Jesus. Do you know, but when we see those wounds... I'm sure we'll join with the rest of heaven and we'll begin to sing. Worthy is the lamb who has redeemed us to God by his blood. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. He did it for me. That's passion. So what is the greatest need of every one of us here tonight? You may be a Christian. You may not be a Christian yet. You may be a (laughs) pre-believer. Say, so what can Jesus give that nobody else can give? Jesus, because He paid it all, He can give the thing that every one of us needs more than anything else, and that is forgiveness. Every one here tonight needs or has needed forgiveness, and Jesus, He paid it all, and He did it all to make that possible. That's passion. That's passion. Tell you a story as I finish, and then we're going to come and sing. Some years ago, Jan and I, we were in Tenerife. We went on a holiday that was free, but you pretty learn in this world that uh, there is no not quite such a thing as a free holiday. We had to go to a timeshare presentation, and in this timeshare presentation, it lasted for six hours. And at the end of it, the guy said, look, I don't want to buy a timeshare. And his boss came over and he sat down and we began talking. And his boss said, I don't want to sell you a timeshare. Tell me what do you do. I said, well, I'm a minister. It's amazing. You tell people you're a minister. They always find someone in the family who went to church. He said, "Oh, I I said, my my, my mother went to church. She was a wonderful spiritual lady. And we talked for a while. He said, I said, do you go to church? He said, I don't go to church. I said, why don't you go to church? I used to go to church, he said. But he said, oh, he said, it was such a social place. And, uh, you know, a lot of people there, he said, were so hypocritical. And he said, said, I don't have a good view of church. I was going to say, I don't have a good view of timeshare people either. (laughs) And then I said, can I ask you a couple of questions? He said, yeah. I said, tell me. I said, have you ever told a lie? Now I'm talking to a timeshare salesman. And he says, yeah, I've told a lie. I said, have you ever blasphemed? He said, yes, I've blasphemed. I said, have you ever looked at somebody lustfully? He said, yes, I'm a man. He says, I've done that. I said, I said you've already admitted. I said, "That you're lying, thieving, blaspheming, adulterating heart. I said, you need forgiveness. I said, and there's not one of us, by the way, he didn't get forgiven, but I didn't buy a timeshare. But they, at least they gave him something to go away with. <laughs> Every one of us needs forgiveness. And Jesus, he paid it all. So let's just pray together tonight. So I've just shared some things. Jan, can you come back? Can we just come and sing? Now, if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus, he is the best thing that can ever happen in your life. He is just so wonderful. And I would just love to pray for you and introduce you to him tonight. And if that's you and you just need to get your life right with God, I just want you just to lift up your hand and say, pray for me, Pastor. That's me. That's me tonight. I just need Jesus. I need forgiveness. I need to get my life right with God. If that's you tonight, just lift up your hand. We Just take a moment. I'd love to pray for you. Lord bless you. Please feel free to come and talk to me afterwards. I'm the Pastor Adrian. Can I ask you a question tonight? Have you, have you been disappointed with God? Has the fire gone out? Is your prayer life nowhere? Is prayer boring? Are the things of the Spirit tedious, mundane? Has religion replaced relationship with Jesus? Is the fire that once burned now very low? Tonight is a night where God once once again, our good God, our loving God, just to pour out His Spirit, and as you open your heart to Him, for the fire to come down upon the heart, say, Lord. I commit again into your hands my life. I commit again my calling, my ministry, my destiny. God, I commit again who I am, what I do. Because Jesus, I believe in you. Jesus, I belong. Jesus, tonight, it's me and you. I worship you. You are not a disappointment. You have been so good to me. You are given, you are all for me. And I give my life. Let's just sing for us, Jack.